Our sermon reading for today is from Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 22. Exodus 13, verses 17 to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Well, getting from point A to point B has changed a lot over the past 20 years. I remember growing up and fiddling with those huge paper maps on road trips, trying to fold them back exactly how the creases went so you could just fit them in a glove box. Then we had that great revolution, which was Google Maps and MapQuest. You'd actually print out step-by-step directions to your destination. And then, if you could afford it, you could actually purchase a mini GPS to put in your car that would direct you with voice commands and prompts. Garmin was a wonderful woman, wasn't she? But now, most people have given up trying to stick that suction cup on their windshield. Too many concussions on quick stops. Instead, we have GPS built into our cars. Or we turn to the myriad options for mapping on our phones that actually include traffic and construction warnings, Google, Waze, Apple Maps. I've heard so much about Waze. I haven't tried it. So if you want to convince me on it, you can talk to me afterwards. This morning, though, we come to the passage in the book of Exodus where we see the people of Israel on the edge of the wilderness needing directions. And believe it or not, their method of guidance is more advanced than anything we have today. They have God. They have Yahweh, that personal name for the God of Israel that's the Lord, all caps in your English translations. Yahweh is with his people in a cloud and in a fire to give them direction as they journey out of Egypt into the wilderness. So in the passage Daniel has just read for us, let's see three things this morning. Let's see a detour, a promise, and a pillar. A detour, a promise, and a pillar. So a detour. God has unleashed signs of judgment on Pharaoh. Pharaoh has let Israel go out of slavery. But as we've seen, the Israelites are not venturing out on their own. No, when Pharaoh lets them go, God leads them out. That's our theme for this morning's service because it's so clear from these six brief verses. So one commentator, Alec Mateer, who I've cited often throughout this series. He writes that Exodus 1 to 13 is the record of how the Lord came to his people in their distress. Exodus 13 through 18 
is the record of how the Lord went with his people on their pilgrimage. See, God is going out with his people. He's leading them. But right away in verse 17, we see that the manner in which he leads them is a bit confusing and out of the way. It says, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. It's interesting that before we even see God's positive direction, we see his negative direction. Before we see where he leads, we see where he does not lead. Israel's on their way to Canaan, to the promised land, and the most direct route is going up the coast into Canaan. It would take about two weeks. But there's a problem. Along that route lie enemies. You see there that the Philistines are there. It's also likely that the Egyptian military had outposts stationed along the coast, and so the Israelites would have run into them, and that wouldn't have ended pretty. So, verse 18 makes sense. God leads them another way so that they won't change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God's not going to lead his people in the most efficient way. No, he's going to lead them in the best way, the way that protects them. He knows they're not ready for war. And as I thought about this this past week, this question keeps coming up in my mind. Is God concerned that his people will turn around and go back to Egypt? The answer's got to be yes. I mean, This will continue to be a concern. Even next week, we'll see them say, man, Egypt looked good. But that leads to another question that kept coming up. So is God leading them on this detour so they don't turn around and mess up his plan to deliver? Well, again, yes and no. He is leading them in a detour so they don't lose heart at opposition and turn around. But he can't be worried in any way that they'll mess up his plan to save. See, throughout this book so far, one of the primary themes we've been considering is God's sovereign control and direction, right? Think about it. When Israel was enslaved and beaten down, they still multiplied in number and strength, chapter 1. When Pharaoh tried to kill the Israelite boys and eliminate threat to his power, God raised up a boy named Moses, to be their deliverer. When Moses said he wasn't the right man for the job, God gave him miraculous signs to perform to prove it. When Pharaoh put his foot down and said, no slaves will leave my land, God sent forces of nature to utterly devastate him. We've seen over and over and over again that God is more powerful and more sovereign than any Pharaoh, any nation, any force. His will is done. His plan is is accomplished. And so God's leading here is not somehow showing he's not in control of his people. It actually shows how much he cares about them and their weakness. He knows his people inside and out. And he knows that they will be tempted to turn around in war. And so in kindness, he leads them on this circuitous, circuitous route roundabout. They're free. They're leaving Egypt for the first time in over four centuries, but they're not alone. They have a guide who knows exactly what they need. 
They have a God whose GPS never recalculates. Whose directions never take wrong turns. They have a God who knows the best way, even if it's not the most direct, common sense way. They have a God who's sovereign. Burke Parsons has said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God never gets new information. He never needs to abort mission and fly in another direction. And yet, and yet he still knows his people's weakness and fickleness, and he leads them away from danger toward the Red Sea. He leads them not where they think they might or should go. He leads them where they need to go. And church family, we often talk, don't we? We often talk about where God is leading. We'll say things about, I'm praying about God's leading for me. We wonder why he's doing things in our lives. And as we do so, we can finally or, or constantly find ourselves easily doubting the course that he set us on. Now, sometimes his guidance seems mysterious. Sometimes his guidance, if we're honest, seems downright wrong. But we can be sure that whatever course he has us on, he's in control. It may not be the most direct course. It may not be the easiest course, but it's the best course. It may even lead us into worse trials. But they will be for our good if we're in Christ. As we follow this God in obedience, he will lead us on the right path, one that is ultimately for his glory and our joy. So Christian, do you believe that? Do you rest in that? Do you trust him? Think about it. Isn't it comforting to know that God doesn't always lead us in the direction we think is best? Isn't it reassuring that he doesn't feel obliged to guide us in the way we want to go? Because if, if what he did always made sense to us, always seemed right to our weak, finite, changeable minds, then we would be God too, wouldn't we? We're not. He is. And so, brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised when he leads us into detours. We should expect the unexpected with this God. Because when we're confused, he's not. When we're perplexed, he's not. When we're uncertain, he's not. When we're out of control, he's not. And so here God veers Israel off of Philistia Boulevard onto interstate wilderness. But he's got a plan. Remember how Lee read earlier from Acts chapter 13 of God's leading his people not only in this story but throughout the, the ensuing thousands of years in their history until he brought Christ. God's route may seem long. It may take millennia. It may seem like a detour. It may seem wearisome. But he will bring salvation for his people. Praise him that his timetable is not ours. Praise him that he's God and we're not. I want to be clear, we still must obey. The Bible teaches we can still very easily resist God's will. But I think the point that we should get from this text is that rest is also 
possible in knowing that ultimately we cannot defeat this Yahweh's plan. We know his character. And because we know that, we can rest in his faithfulness. One author writes, we may not know the way we are going, but we know our guide. All right, a detour. Next point, a promise. Look there in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So this is a direct reference back to the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, There we see one of Jacob or Israel's sons, Joseph, on his deathbed, and he's telling his family that God will one day deliver them from Egypt. From Exodus 1, it seems like Joseph died before slavery came about in Egypt. And yet he still must have known that promise from God to Abraham back in the 15th chapter of Genesis. How God had told Abraham a day would come when his descendants would be afflicted in this foreign land for 400 years and yet brought out with great riches, delivered. And so Joseph here is nearing death, but he assures his brothers that their descendants will one day leave Egypt. And when that happens, they should take him with them. Joseph believed in God's salvation. He trusted in God's promise. He trusted that the Lord who promised would be faithful to keep his promise. It's interesting, right? Even here we see in this exodus of Israel, even the dead Israelites are leaving Egypt. Joseph's bones are are brittle and decaying, but God's promises are alive and well. So Moses follows his forefather's command, retrieves Joseph's bones, and brings him, too, out of slavery. Centuries later in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews reflects on this in his famous Hall of Faith, or her famous Hall of Faith. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, right, ladies? Uh, He writes in, in chapter 11 that it was by faith that Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. It says Joseph had faith in Yahweh. Faith that looked ahead to the unseen and believed with confidence that God would make good on his promise. Joseph knew Yahweh. He knew that this God was a covenant-keeping, faithful God, as we've been singing this morning. And so he knew that wherever he led his people, he would do so to keep his promise. This is, again, a a theme that we've seen running throughout Exodus, right? God's people are in bondage. They cry out, God hears. God's people are despairing of deliverance. God brings judgment on Egypt. They leave. They get out of Dodge. God keeps his promises. And I think, you know, sometimes when I first read through this passage, verse 19 seemed weird. It seemed out of place. But I think this ties right in with our theme from this passage, doesn't it? Because if it's true that God leads us, then a good question is how can we trust where he leads? If, if it's true that he's sovereign and his plan will happen, how can we know that that plan is good for us? 
We know God is powerful. How can we know he's good? We look at his promise. We look at how the God of the universe, of his own free will, binds himself to a promise, stakes his own name on it. I will save. I will deliver. I will bless. Ultimately, all those promises climax in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't they? This Jesus who came as the final Savior, this Jesus who came to deliver sinners out of slavery to a much worse taskmaster, death and sin. A Jesus who came to make good on God's promise. When Jesus died for the sins of his people, he showed that God's plan of salvation had been accomplished. It is finished. See, throughout the Old Testament, God's people heard little clues and saw little prophecies that said, kind of like Joseph in verse 19, God will visit you. God will surely come. God will surely send a deliverer. But years and decades and centuries and millennia passed, and it seemed like God had forgotten his promise. There were 400 years of silence as God's people waited before the coming of Christ. But like Joseph, they had good reason to be confident that even in centuries of waiting, God would make good on what he had said he would do. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what a joy it is to have you with us. But in love, we would say, you have no hope of forgiveness for your sin. You have no hope of salvation from death if God is in control, but not good. And so rejoice with us this morning that he is both. That he keeps his promises, that he's provided a way for you to be saved. Your sin deserves his judgment, and God's judgment is death. But Jesus, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus came to die for you, to take that death for you, to die in your place. Today, then, you must respond to that news. It's urgent that you choose how you're going to receive that gospel. Either dismiss it as untrue and rebel against God or humble yourself. Repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ and what he's done. Don't straddle the fence. It's either yes or no with Christ. And I beg you, choose Christ. You will find life and joy eternal in him. Okay, so a detour and a promise. Finally, a pillar. There in verse 20, we read, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. God not only guides his people, he becomes visibly present to them, doesn't he? And he uses familiar imagery. 
Remember way back in Exodus chapter 3, how had he appeared to Moses? As a fire in a burning bush, holy, unapproachable, unchanging. And now, yet again, his presence with his people is shown in a fire by night and a cloud by day, leading them, guiding them to Mount Sinai where that fiery presence will descend on the mountain to meet with his people. See this God as totally above us, not easy to approach, holy, and yet, in all of that total transcendence, choosing to be present with his people, to visit them, to abide with them, to lead them from their midst. Throughout their journeys in the wilderness, we'll see over and over and over again that this cloud and this fire will lead Israel. And when that pillar moves, they'll move. And when that pillar stays put, they'll stay put. God's not being subtle here. He's showing his people clearly where to go. He goes out in front and shows them the way. He's their light in darkness, 24-7, never sleeping always vigilant, always watching and caring over his people. Imagine you're an Israelite wandering out into who knows where, wondering if God is with you, getting up in the middle of the night, walking out of your tent and looking up and seeing this pillar of fire in the sky. It's a ready reminder that Yahweh was with them that the same God who had lit up Egypt remained with them, was on their side. We see there in verse 22 that wonderful phrase that this cloud and this fire did not depart from before the people. It brings to mind that phrase from how firm a foundation we sang earlier, right? I will never forsake. Yahweh is with them. He will care for them because he's faithful to his covenant. And so we see that fire begin at the burning bush. We see it here in a pillar of fire and smoke. We see it descend on Mount Sinai. And then at the end of Exodus, the very last verse, we see this cloud, this imagery of the presence of God descend on the tabernacle, fill with God's glory, this dwelling place of his people. God with us. Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, Israel had it easy. I mean, they actually saw the presence of God, and it literally got up and moved when they should move, and it literally stopped when they should stop. If I had that, if I had that sort of visible sign of God's presence, sure, I'd be confident. Then I would trust one author says, like, if, if you just saw like a pillar of fire descend on the person you should marry, you know, or just fill up a website of the college you should apply to. Well, church, as we'll see next week, Israel continues to doubt, even though they have this presence of God. So there's that. But even more importantly for us this morning, remember that God is with us. God with us. Christ God coming down, not as a wispy cloud or a fiery pillar, but as a person. 
Jesus claimed to be the very Son of God in human form, giving himself up in our place. Great. That was 2,000 years ago. But it wasn't the end. Remember, when Jesus ascended back to his Father in heaven, he didn't take away his presence. So before his death, he spoke to his disciples in John chapter 14. He said, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Christians, we do have the presence of God. It's not out in front of us, leading in a pillar of fire and cloud. It's within us. Tony Marita writes, We have God not only among us, but in us. God's presence was with his people and still remains with us today, leading us and guiding us in an even greater way because it's God's presence within every single believer. So much better. God has given us his spirit to lead us, to convict us of sin, to give us understanding of his word, to give us joy in our faith, to give us perseverance in our fight, to give us assurance of our deliverance, to give us unity in our church, to give us victory over temptation, to give us protection from evil, to give us boldness in the face of persecution, to give us hope in the face of trial, to give us confidence in the promises of God. We have not been left alone. We have God in us. So how do we walk in step with this spirit? If that's how God led Israel, how do we follow God's leading today? In Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul walks through the armor of God, he says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Which leads us to see that one of the primary ways the Spirit works in Christians, if not the primary way, is through the Bible. The Bible is the Spirit's chisel and scalpel to change us and lead us and transform us as we follow Christ. This book is not some ancient Aesop's fables. It's not even an old book of morality and wisdom that we have much to learn from today. It's the very word of God given by the very spirit of God to lead the very people of God. So in this book, we are led. In this book, truth is spoken to our souls, light is shined into our darkness, life is breathed into our dead bones. Christian, though, how, how can we walk as one being led by the Spirit this week? Feast on the Word of God. Obey it. Study it. Let it set your agenda. Walk in its light. Forsake the things that it says will turn out to be empty for you and serve the God that you will find here. Now, often when we talk about 
being led by the Spirit. We do the drop and flop sometimes, right? Just, oh, that's who I should marry, right? Being led by the Spirit does not contain any magic formulas or hidden messages or invisible ink in order to be led. It requires obedience in reading and finding life in the gospel we read here. Tim Chester puts it this way. To be led by the Spirit is not a mystical experience in which we receive new revelations from God. To be led by the Spirit is to live our new liberated life as we head for life in the new creation. We are being led by the Spirit every time he prompts us to say no to temptation and yes to Jesus. We are being led by the Spirit every time our hearts are set on our heavenly inheritance rather than our earthly treasure. If today, Christian, you refuse to give in to temptation, then you will have been led by the Spirit of God, the same God who led his people in the wilderness. So church, we too are God's people who have been led out of slavery and find ourselves in the wilderness. But we too are God's people who follow our leading guide to take us to the promised land. So let's humble ourselves. Let's go to his word. Let's go to prayer. Let's ask him to lead us. Let's pray. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to be led by you. And so we thank you that you haven't left us to figure that out on our own. Thank you that you've given us your written word and your indwelling spirit who illuminates us, who enlightens us, who convicts us. But Lord, we confess that oftentimes we'd like to follow our own ideas and not the convictions of your spirit. So make us humble, make us teachable, and lead us as we follow after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing my soul finds.